Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's been six months since Russia invaded Ukraine, and there's still no end in sight. Is Canada falling short on its promises to assist Ukraine? Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, will join us to recap today's healthcare presser. Canadian farmers have long fought off crop and livestock threats from diseases and pests. Now they're concerned about cyber attacks. We'll explain that to you. And amid the sex abuse allegations, Hockey Canada cultures, many Canadians are not confident at all that things are ever going to change. We're going to delve into that for you as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An upcoming uh, anniversary, not something to be celebrated. August 24th, uh, Ukraine is going to be observing the six-month mark since Russia invaded. But it's also the 31st year of U- independence for Ukraine. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be some celebrations, of course, in, in Ukraine and Kiev. But uh, a little guarded and a little because of what's going on, of course, with the war with Russia. Uh, but it does give us an opportunity to talk about Canada's role over the last six months. And uh, a lot of concern raised, especially in the last couple of months, about uh, Canada's role and basically, well, some people say inaction at very key moments uh, when Ukraine really needed some help. There's an interesting op-ed piece about this uh, written by our next guest. Uh, Michael Boschewski is a uh, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and Global Affairs Analyst. Uh, Michael, first and foremost, thank you for joining us on a very busy day. I'm glad you could be with us for a little while. My pleasure. Good to be here. I mean, I guess to use an old colloquialism that may fit the dot, Canada has been talking the talk, but not really walking the walk uh, to, when it comes to, to the assistance for Ukraine. You know, we, we've always said, we've got your back. We're going to be there for you. We've been pretty slow to react. And, and, and frankly, when we have reacted an awful lot of the time, uh, the actions are questionable. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, before I get to that, let me for 30 seconds, just tell you where I am and what I'm saying. I'll put on my reporters yeah. out for a minute. So I'm in Lviv right now in front of the palace here, and the gates just swung open, and President Zelensky of Ukraine, President Erdogan of Turkey, and the UN Secretary General are about to come out. Now, Zelensky and Erdogan have been meeting for the past hour or so, and uh, the stakes couldn't be higher right now. They're going to be talking about three things. One is continuing that grain deal that unlocked Ukrainian grain to flow through the Black Sea to world markets, including presumably to Canada. Secondly, is that really dire situation at the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which is in Russian-occupied land. And then thirdly, and obviously, is a some kind of path to peace. Now, in terms of Canada's role, I, I've been quite critical, as you kind of suggested, because I think Canada could do a lot more. And, you know, basically three things come to mind. One is... Um, leading the Western charge to declare Russia state sponsor of terrorism, because that would um, open up uh, a lot of new sanctions and restrictions on, um, on Russia. Second one would be tightening sanctions even further with Western partners. And then um, thirdly, I think what Canada could do is uh, deny Russian Federation visas to all Russian citizens for the time being, and they could press the G7 and the EU to do the same. Uh, and by the way, um, Russia, I, I, I believe Canada is one of the few countries who hasn't uh, expelled Russian diplomats. Just uh, uh, another footnote for you, because I'm telling you what's happening just a few feet away mm-hmm. from me. The UN Secretary General has arrived in a huge convoy to join the talks between the two leaders. So lots of security around here. It's pretty dramatic. 
uh, and and a lot of news too. We see exactly yeah. what they're going to say when they do come out of the the meeting, and, and hopefully right. there's going to be some positive aspects to this. Uh, right. But uh, circling back to Canada, I guess the most recent uh, episode, uh, really, that a lot of people are concerned about, Michael, uh, is the turbine issue, and 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 uh, you know the the Canadian government tried to justify that by saying, look, at you know Germany's in a in a stressful situation here. We have to help these people out. Uh, I, I know the German Chancellor is going to be over here in a couple of days, I guess, to talk about this and maybe sign a yeah. deal uh, for energy. But at the same time, uh, you, you saw the uh, the frustration, I guess, from the Ukraine government in a situation like that, saying, I, you can't be doing this. You're aiding and abetting the people that just invaded us. Exactly. And it looks kind of, I think it kind of makes the Trudeau government look like hypocrites, because on the one side, they're, you know, introduced strong sanctions, advocating for strong sanctions. But on the other hand, they tinkered with these sanctions in order to allow Russia to get a turbine, which it's using for a pipeline to weaponize energy. It, it just boggles the mind to think about it. And then at the end of the day, the Russians didn't even uh, take the turbine. So I think they kind of called uh, Canada's bluff. Uh, I think it made, um, uh, foreign, without due respect, foreign affairs, Melanie Jolie not look too intelligent in all of this. But it is what it is at the moment, and I, I, I know that the Ukrainian World Congress and my friend Daniel Bilak, the Toronto Ukrainian Canadian lawyer, are actually suing the federal government to stop this uh, ridiculous uh, transaction from happening. But look, it, it, we have to lead by example as Canada, and to do this sort of thing sends a signal to Russia that it can do what it wants, it, it doesn't have to take sanctions seriously, and that's one of the things I think that's prolonging this war. Uh, the other element that uh, came to light just a little while ago, of course, and I know you referred to it in the op-ed piece, uh, is the story that was reported in the Globe and Mail that uh, bureaucrats at Global Affairs Canada uh, directed diplomats in Kiev to withhold intelligence from Ukrainian staff uh, that could be targeted by the Russians should an invasion actually take place. Uh, you know, as as I heard that story, Michael, I juxtaposed that with uh, mm -hmm. with Ken Taylor and and the you know the the brave yeah. aspect of of yeah. getting those the hostages out of Iran so many years ago, where Canada took a lead role, a very dangerous role, but a lead role uh, on the global stage like this. This is the polar opposite of that. Exactly, and you know Trudeau once famously said, "The world needs more Canada." Is this the way? We treat, is this the way we treat our friends? I mean, it's happened in, in Kiev and then it happened a year ago in Kabul where we didn't, we weren't there for uh, those brave souls, Afghan nationals in that case that worked for us. And, you know, I made the point in the article as well that if this continues to happen, that it will become much, much more difficult for Canada to recruit um, qualified professional talent overseas. You know, these are small circles. Word gets around quickly. And the thing that's especially hurtful here, I think, is that the Ukrainian staff that worked um, for Canada here in Ukraine, they've been, in many cases, they've been working for many, many years. Uh, professionalism, they've traveled the world on behalf of, of Canada, you know, and it, it really boggles the mind how this could be allowed to happen. And then, of course, the other thing is, if um, Trudeau did come with uh, Christopher Freeland and Melody Jolie to open the embassy back in May, why isn't it open? Open. I was there about ten days ago, and it was padlocked, and um, it's caused also uh, difficulties in uh, Ukrainians getting those Canadian emergency visas. Apparently, there's a three to four month backlog now. So something's got to happen on that front. We need to get our diplomats back to their desks in Kiev.
Well, as, as you say, there are stricter measures they could be taking towards Russia, which, which they seem to be dragging their heels on, uh, and, and offering assistance. And I mean, even initially when they offered assistance, it, it was, as you mentioned, it was going to be in the area of, of human, humanitarian aid. Uh, they slowly but surely uh, and, and kind of reluctantly came to the table and said, yes, we can supply music, munitions too. Uh, that was surprising yeah. to an awful lot of people. Yeah, it was, um, you know, because, you know, when the war started, uh, Justin Trudeau was still very keen on sanctions. He said, it's the sharpest tool we have in the arsenal. Well, that turns out not to be the case. But the other thing that um, uh, Canada has on the table right now, which is good, I think it's about 39 of those so-called super bisons. These are uh, very high-tech Harvard personnel carriers that will help uh, Ukrainians uh, in their offensive against Russia. And then also some... Uh, high-res cameras that will go on those Turkish-made Bayraktar drones. So stuff like that is going, going to help. But, you know, at the end of the day, what needs to happen right now is Canada, uh, Western allies need to ramp up their provision of weaponry, high-tech weaponry, in order to help Ukraine defeat the Russians. And I mean defeat, defeat them to the extent that they're not going to try another attempt anytime soon. Because, you know, just to wrap up this segment is that if we don't um, stand to, up, up to Mr. Putin and push him back on our own terms, he's going to do it on his terms later on, and that would be horrible for everyone involved. Absolutely. Uh, it's a great op-ed piece, and uh, it's a very busy day, Michael. I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this today. Uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we can talk again down the road. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Michael Bosicu, a senior fellow, of course, at the Atlantic Council, who's over there right now as uh, the meeting uh, with uh, the Turkish president and, of course, Zelensky and others uh, continues. And uh, certainly there'll be some news out of that. You can bet on that. We're going to do a quick break and come right back. Busy day today. Glad you're with us here. The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton, brought to you by Wizens Law. Listen, you didn't choose to get injured, but you can choose the right lawyer. Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 or wizenslaw.com. Now located at 911 Golf Links Road, Ancaster. Plenty of free parking and easy to get to. We're back after this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about some of the uh, revisions, shall we say, uh, and enhancements. I mean, I'll try to use some of the government's words here. With our healthcare system here in the province of Ontario, it's common knowledge, of course, that we've got problems here uh, with staffing, uh, with uh, wait times, with ERs being shut down for periods of time. And uh, the government said they were going to respond to that, and they certainly have uh, with the announcement this morning from uh, Health Minister Sylvia Jones and uh, long term Care Minister uh, Paul Calandra. Joining us now to talk about this is Colin DeMello. Colin, of course, is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News, uh, who's at the announcement. Colin, any surprises in what you heard this morning? Um, not not a lot of surprises. I think we were looking to see a lot of more concrete action, but we didn't really see much that would you know necessarily deal with the current crisis at hand. Uh, one of the major things that the uh, that the government is looking to do is move alternate level of care patients out of hospitals. So in every hospital, there are patients who no longer receive or need uh, acute care, and that's largely because. Um, you know, their immediate problem has been addressed, and now they might need longer-term care, and they need to be in a long-term care home. But the trouble is, is that they are often placed in a priority list to go to a long-term care home of their choice when a bed opens up. So in the interim, they end up remaining in the hospital. They're called alternate level of care, or ALC, patients. And there are thousands of these patients in hospitals right across Ontario, and for a long time, for years, you know, even before the Ford government came into power in 2018, 
uh, this has been seen as one of the challenges and the barriers within the system because beds are ultimately occupied by ALC patients and it contributes to gridlock. So the government says it's now going to introduce new legislation that would effectively say, if you are an ALC patient, you're going to be moved out of the hospital and you're going to be placed at the closest long-term care home, even though it's not your choice, until your choice, a space becomes available. So they say that they'd be able to free up about 200 to 250 hospital beds at a time when beds are sorely needed. So that was the biggest announcement coming out of this today. Yeah, and how that's going to roll out, I know, is going to be concerning to families. You know, what do you mean? How far am I going to have to drive to go visit my loved ones? And as we say, the devil's always going to be in the details. I know they also talked a little bit about, especially during the Q&A, Colin, uh, about the the, the 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 nursing situation and and frankly the compensation issue of course uh, the one percent that bill that has been hanging over their heads uh, and and I know there's a lot of concern here about uh, about uh, using private nurses in situations like this uh, they didn't seem to have a solution for that did they no not that we saw today I mean there certainly might be one in the works but you know the agency nursing that's the one that's adding a lot to the bottom lines of a lot of hospitals and you know when you're paying four times the amount for an agency nurse it it seems to indicate that there is a need for better paid nursing staff it's just that the province is reluctant to do it they've only been paying them an additional one percent every single year but the problem has grown worse during the pandemic because it was a huge need for nurses agencies have already existed but now more nurses are migrating to that system. And in fact, the head of Ontario Health had given me one example. They had, um, they had actually seen, in some cases, a, a casual nurse who wasn't able to show up for his or her shift, but then they contacted the agency, and the very same nurse who was supposed to work casual came in as the agency nurse and was now being paid three to four times the amount that they would be by the hospital. So the Minister of Health is acknowledging that it's a problem, but they don't really have a solution for it as to whether or not they're going to you know, Im- implement some kind of legislation to put a cap on how much a hospital can spend on nurses. Her reasoning is they don't want to then negatively impact the healthcare system as as with all things, you know, you might have unintended consequences of a piece of policy. So they don't want to impact the healthcare system, but it really is a larger conversation because the more money that goes towards agency nursing, the less money that goes into frontline physician or patient care, and that's what they're really concern- concerned about. Well, and the other element to that, as you've been reporting, of course, is that they're making this extra money. It's the hospital that has to pay them. It's not It's not the ministry. Uh, so that's coming out of hospital budgets, and they're already stressed financially. So it's creating a problem. But again, you know, as, as, as we heard this morning, I mean, the minister says that, you know, we don't want that unintended consequence. Well, if you paid the, the, the nurses on staff more money, uh, that might be part of the solution, too. But they don't seem to want to go there. Again, the idea of hiring more nurses and training more nurses, they talked about that again, Colin. Uh, But, you know, when you look at the net gain or loss here, too, we still hear stories about nurses that are leaving the profession on a pretty regular basis right now. So we don't really have a number as to where we are with staffing there, do we? Well, well, we do and we don't. So it's interesting. The Ontario Liberal Party shared some data with me yesterday that they got courtesy of the Ontario College of Nurses. So between the years... 2018 and 2021, there have been an additional 8,300 net new nurses. These are uh, RNs and RPNs, registered practical nurses as well. So that's an increase uh, of 8,300 net new. The Ford government has claimed that they have added 14,000 nurses. So you're talking about a difference of about 
600 or so, uh, 6,000 or so nurses between what the premier claims that the government has added to the system and what the hard data actually shows. And, and the data comes from nurses who were actually registered in the system because they all have to register with the Ontario College of Nurses. So, you know, the numbers seem to indicate that the government says 14,000, the Ontario College of Nurses says actually it's 8,300 net new nurses in the system. So does that mean that there are 6,000 nurses who have left the public health care system to go elsewhere to the U.S., uh, another province, or just leave the profession altogether? That really now is the big question. Exactly. Well, a lot to sift through here uh, on a very busy day. I really appreciate you taking some time. Of course, we'll be watching for your reporting on this uh, label at uh, Global News at 5.30 and 6, of course. Uh, thanks so much for this, Colin. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, uh, at that press conference today with the Health Minister. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Farming has changed, has evolved over the years, uh, as anybody in the industry can certainly tell you. Uh, they've had to, you know, in the last 100 years, 200 years or whatever, fight off uh, livestock threats, diseases, pests, all these sorts of things. Now there's a concern with smart farming becoming more and more prevalent of cyber attacks. And uh, there's a lot of work being done on this right now. It's a lot of research uh, to try to help these out. I mean, we're already concerned, of course, because of what we've seen over the last couple of years through the pandemic uh, with supply chains and, and getting food and the things that we grow on these farms to market. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Ali Donkatan, who is a professor of computer science and a Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity and Threat Intelligence at the University of Guelph. Uh, professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Great to be here. Uh, how big a problem is this? I, I, I guess anytime there's, you know, we're going to start using smart technology, uh, there's always going to be the possibility of, of hackers. So they're, they're out there. They're, they're looking for prey right now. Are, are mm -hmm. they targeting farming? Absolutely. You know, um, with the adoption of the smart farming, as you mentioned earlier, we are now facing with a bigger challenge. You know, when you look into the current state of the farming and ag industry, we are talking about two different networks, the traditional classical IT part of their networks. And now all these new smart OT side of the network is connected to the traditional IT. And I can tell you that farming sector is quite vulnerable these days, uh, even on the traditional IT side, classical IT side, because of lack of any or very few security measurements that are deployed and applied in this industry in general. Now, larger corporations, of course, that, that are, may feel that they're vulnerable to this, as you say, they, they take security measures. They, they put up guards and safeguards. Uh, mm -hmm. Are there any available for people in farming? I mean, they're pretty much independent contractors an awful lot of the time in situations like this, but they, they, they still, I guess, would be vulnerable, wouldn't they? They are. I would say even, even the bigger corporations in this sector, as they are connecting their network to the OT or to the smart farming or, or smart devices on the field to kind of auto, automatically collect the data, they are becoming vulnerable as well because they usually don't give enough attention on all the risks that they are exposed to when they are connecting that smart farming and all those sensors to their traditional corporate network. That's on one side. And then on individual farmers, 
um, we have seen very, I mean, a lack of um, understanding in terms of uh, basic cyber hygiene requirements that the farmers and farming stations should follow. You know, they are producing a lot of digital data ranging from uh, data about their uh, output, their production, to a specific data about the the, the kind of uh, products that they are ordering or the way that they are managing their business. And most of these are already moved to the computers, to the digital format. And unfortunately, uh, we are seeing little to no cyber hygiene practice or protection happening in that sector, especially at a specific farming station. It is very common to see that people are sharing passwords there. They are putting the passwords that are easy to remember and easy to guess by the uh, criminals at the same side at, at the same time they we are looking at like outdated or systems that have, been, have not been updated for years so they are very vulnerable and these systems unfortunately are very connected to the internet these days so they're accessible by all those uh cyber criminals or attackers who look for the targets is there a certain naivety here, to, to, Professor? I mean, thinking, oh, yeah, who's going to care about what I'm doing in my, 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 my farming business here in southwestern Ontario or wherever it might be? But because uh, <laughs> it's the same kind of naivety that a lot of people in business, I think, would have, too, or even with their home computer. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, as we found out in dealing, and, and I know you've done a great deal of research on cyber uh, security, uh, information is king. And if they can garner information from you and, and, and sell that to somebody else, uh, they're going to do it. Absolutely. I mean, I have a rule of thumb. If you are making money, you are in the interest of the attackers, right? That's yeah. the rule of thumb there, right? And even I have seen when you are saying that not-for-profit organizations are getting being targeted by the attackers, of course, they are going to target the farms and even individual farmers, you know? It, attackers would not discriminate. If they find a weak target, they would target them. And I have seen that uh, misunderstanding few years back in the health sector, like four or five years ago, everyone was talking about who is going to target hospitals. And we have seen that hospitals have been hit badly, right? And the same thing is now happening in the farming sector as well. Uh, many of these farmers think that they are not in interest of the attackers. It is not about being in the interest of the attackers. It is about that if you are not protected and if you are vulnerable, you will be targeted. Most of these attacks are no fairly automated so they are scanning all the systems that they can get access to connect to the internet and they will find you and when they find you they will, they are going to start uh taking advantage and where that advantage is dropping a ransomware encrypting your system and asking for the ransom payment that's one way or the other way would be that they steal your information and sell it on the secondary market or start using those for more advanced attacks like using your system to target other systems right Professor, how how organized are are, are the these cyber criminals, the ones that are doing the hacking? Uh, we tend to always think when we talk about hacks, we think of of Russians and Chinese, and uh, you know that are sitting someplace working usually with, if not for the government, you know, with with the knowledge from the government that of what's going on in situations like that. Uh, and, but is are these? Is there an organization here? Is there a a, a, a network, a pattern of, of how these people operate? Yeah, I would say farming sector specifically, and I'm talking about the North America farming sector, that's the only area that we have done research and investigation on that. It's quite interesting in the sense that it is both in interest of the cyber criminals and state-sponsored hacking teams. And we have seen cyber criminals are very interested because they are easy to compromise targets. You can 
relatively easily target a farm or farming station, get access to them because they are not protected, they are not monitored, and do your malicious activity, which is normally dropping ransomware or stealing uh, any private information that is stored on those machines. But at the same time, because of this sensitive role that most of these farming infrastructure playing in uh, the society, adversaries, I mean, state-sponsored hacking teams that they look for opportunities to disrupt their uh, supply chain or to get upper hands in any future conflict are showing a lot of interest as well. So I can tell you most of the times that we are on site and a farmer, you know, we normally get called from the farmers when they notice that they have been compromised. And this is happening when most of the time uh, they are noticing that because of cyber criminal activities. But when we are there on site to help with that, we find evidences of advanced persistent threat hacking groups or these estate sponsored hacking groups, Chinese, Russian, Iranians, North Koreans, most of the time, right? That they were on this system. So when you see that kind of interest from these hacking groups it clearly shows that the scale of these attacks could be much wider than what we have seen in our engagements and uh, and that could raise some alerts especially at the national defense level that this is a sector uh, that requires monitoring requires protection or requires legislation at least right because it is in the interest of the state sponsored hacking teams you do great work here at University of Guelph. I'm mean, the university, of, of the course of there is is cutting edge when it comes to agriculture and 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 food services and and uh, the agri food business. Uh, are other people cognizant of this around North America, Professor? And are, are they doing this research too? And are, are they sharing your concern? As you have seen in the report that we published, currently the cybersecurity market in the ag sector is very slim. Most of the cybersecurity researchers are focused on other sectors like financial sector, like mm -hmm. defense sector for the right reasons. I mean, there are more funding there. There are more, uh, I would say, opportunities to work there. But in the farming sector, unfortunately, in the North America, in cybersecurity in the farming sector, there are very limited uh, research and very limited developments you know, from the company's point of view in this area specifically. We have seen uh, more activities in Europe, especially in Netherlands, uh, on, this, uh, on this specific area of security of farming and smart farming. But I can say that it is, I mean, I know less than like five researchers or five companies who are working in North America and they are looking at the farming sector as well. Well, and, and that's troubling in and of itself. And I, I, I see your point, uh, you know, that their their focus may be on other things. Like, like you say, large corporations where large amounts of money uh, could be, you know, it, uh, impacted by something like this. I mean, we've heard of hospitals uh, mm -hmm. that, that are attacked and, and being held ransom and a number of different things. Uh, most of them don't report it, though, uh, be, uh, out of embarrassment, whatever the case may be. What's the situation with, with the agriculture business? I mean, it's... Yeah. Can you track how often this is happening or can you speculate how often this is happening? And is there also a concern in that particular sector that, 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 that these things go unreported? Absolutely. You know, I would say, especially in the ag sector, most of these cases are never reported. Uh, I, let me step back and talk about generally about paying to the cyber criminals. That's illegal. People should not pay. Uh, cyber criminals should not help them. Even when you see, unfortunately, hospitals or these kind of organizations are deciding to pay the ransom. That's that's very worrying. You know, everyone is just worried about that. 
And I can tell you, 80% of these ransomwares uh, can be, uh, the, I mean, we, we can find their key and decrypt, right? That return back the information. So you do not really need to pay the ransomware, especially if you have called the expert at the earlier stage. Most of the time, the problem that we have and the situation that most of these organizations have to report them publicly happens when they do not know what to do. You know, I have been in many situations in many farming stations, hospitals, even even some financial sector organizations that they don't simply have any rules for incident response in, in, when they when they deal with cyber attacks. So they don't know who to call, when ask for help, and you know, the cyber attacks are happening very quickly. So minutes really matters. So if you do not have the contact of an expert to call them right when you notice something wrong, or if you do not have any procedure in place uh, to react to these cyber attacks, and you are going to wait for a few days to get these things sorted, that would be just too late. No one can help you, right, on that situation. And looking at the farming sector, I can tell you that I have seen many, many uh, organizations, clients that they have been impacted several times. And that's another issue in this specific sector that unfortunately we are seeing reoccurring case, meaning uh, stations that have been compromised in the past, we help them to recover and they are being compromised again and again because when we advise them about the next steps to take, most of them are just ignoring, thinking it just happened once. If you have been compromised once, I can tell you that you automatically become in the radar of many other attackers. So you have to apply further measurement and further secure your networks. Otherwise, the attackers will be back on your network in a matter of days. Are you confident that this industry is, is computer literate, though, that to be able to handle that and prepare for something like that? I'm not. And I can tell you the, uh, the best way is not to expect all industries, including farming, to have a big IT team. It is important that we have good processes and procedures in place. And more importantly, we need to have uh, standards. And this, this should come from legislators, that you need to have minimum standards that should be applied to all sectors, say, in Canada for cybersecurity. And in addition to that, you need to have rules and regulations applicable to specific sectors. Unfortunately, unlike, say, financial sector that are very regulated in terms of the cyber attacks, we have nothing, zero attention to the cyber I mean, to the, the cyber requirements in the farming sector. So you could be a big corporation with tons of information, and there is no, no nothing you, you should do. I mean, legally, you are not uh, you are not obliged to do anything except those minimum requirements that are applicable to all companies in Canada, like that privacy requirements. But anything beyond that is just um, it just. It's just a corporate choice to do it or not. And that's making everyone worried in this sector, right? Because if you do not have rules and regulations, there is no reason for the companies to further invest on that. And that's not um, something that the, that's, that's, I can blame the farmers, I can blame the corporations. They are going to uh, optimize their activities and meet and, and, and increase their revenues uh, or ROIs as much as possible. And most of the, these organizations are considering IT and cyber as a cost to their system, that they only take it if there are rules and regulations that make them to do so. So I would like to raise, raise the alert for the regulators in this field as well, that we need to think about it. We need to put rules and regulations here before we get to the same situations that we are we have had in the health sector a few years back, that hospitals were compromised. I imagine some compromises on the farming sector could have even bigger impact 
um, if they are going to impact our supply chain or uh, impact uh, even even impacting the cycles of these farming activities. You know, um, there are specific cycles that needs to be followed in these base in these businesses. And if for the cyber attacks or for any reason they cannot follow that cycle, everything would be delayed for like maybe even half of a year, six months, right? This sector. Well, and we've seen that. I mean, listen, it, we've just experienced the, the, the pandemic, and we've seen the unintended consequences mm-hmm. uh, that that shortages have caused, uh, whether it's supply chain or whatever. And uh, you know, the, these hackers—I mean—they have the ability right now to really, uh, you know, throw a wrench into the into this whole system here, the, which is going to have an impact on food prices, which are already going up because of inflation. Uh, it could impact supply. That, so some products or some things that are being grown right now might not be available. I mean, we we kind of take what's going on in agriculture for granted and and uh, that i think we do that at our own peril don't we absolutely and uh, you know you mentioned about pandemic and i can tell that during the pandemic we saw a rush to connect most of these uh, farms and equip them with sensors that are connected to the internet now and that increased the attack landscape in these sectors significantly and with the lack of security monitoring or a sector-wide security standard most of these are left unreported so you know sometimes i am getting personally scared of the scale of these attacks if uh, what we see on the field are true and can be extended to more clients uh, seeing such an upper hand by uh, adversaries especially as responsible as adversaries in this sector that could be worrisome if, uh, if, if, we, if we get to the trouble with some of these countries and they decide to use those cyber uh, capacities against us. So, um, and, and, and these, most of these things are left unnoticed, unattended. And I can tell you that uh, one of the reasons that we are seeing most of these cases is because of University of Guelph being known to be active in the ag sector. Uh, so that's why they are contacting us in the cybersecurity. I, I believe that there could be the same situation in other areas and other places, but as they do not, they are not connected to the teams or to the groups like us. They just left unreported, right? Uh, this is very concerning, and I'm glad that uh, that you and your team are doing so much work on this. Uh, I'll direct people, by the way, to the webpage. Uh, they can read the story themselves. It's news.uoguelph.ca, and uh, you can read the, uh, the work and the data that's gone into this. Professor, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, and thanks for spending some time with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A continuing saga and, and a sad, sad story about uh, the sexual misconduct uh, allegations and sexual abuse allegations going on uh, in Hockey Canada. And uh, our good friends at Angus Reid have been doing some surveying, a national survey, uh, to get the, the pulse of the Canadian people and what they're thinking about what's going on here. And it's, it's not a pretty picture. A uh, new study from uh, Angus Reid finds that a majority of Canadians, about 60% of them actually, say that sexual harassment and sexual assault are a major problem in youth hockey. Another 17% say it's a problem, but not a big one. Well, it is a big one. Uh, So what's going to be done about this? And what can we do to change people's attitudes? And what can we do to change the culture that seems to be problematic there? I want to bring uh, Dr. Ann Pegararo back to the conversation. Uh, Dr. Pegararo, of course, is the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sports. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, always a pleasure to be here. Uh, no surprise by these numbers here that the, even if Hockey Canada doesn't seem to understand it, it seems as if the majority of people uh, in this country think this is, there's a problem here. You can't just sweep this under the rug. 
No, and I, I'm really actually thankful that Angus Reid did this because, you know, we, you and I have been talking about this for a while, but every time we do talk about it, people are like, oh, you're not, you're not hockey people, this isn't all Canada. And Well, Angus Reid went out and got a pretty big sample of Canadians and asked them these questions. So I think the things we've been talking about have been, you know, verified by the Canadian population. Yeah, and, and the hockey culture, I mean, as you mentioned, because that's one of the great things about these surveys is they, they, they drill down. Uh, and get some numbers here, as well as, as you say, the big picture. You look at other things here, and even within the hockey culture, uh, more than half, well, 56%, I guess, of Canadians with a connection to youth hockey, whether current or past, see sexual misconduct in hockey culture as a major issue, which I guess underscores what you and I talked about it last time, and the doctor, this is not a new issue. This has been going on for quite some time, and nobody was talking about it. Nobody was admitting it. Yeah, I think now we know that even people who have deep connections to hockey, played it or coach it, are recognizing this as a problem. Like it's, it's a majority. And overall, you know, the survey showed also that the, that the Canadians understand that this is more than just hockey. This is, again, like you and I have been talking, you know, 85% of the people in this survey said they think this is a problem across all Canadian sport. Yeah, and <laughs> interest and, and and when you look at some of these stories in isolation, uh, you know, you talked about the the women's soccer team in British Columbia, the the gymnastics teams that have come forward on this. Uh, I, I guess what we need to do here is connect the dots and understand that look at this is this is a systemic problem. This is not just going on in hockey dressing rooms. This is going on with youth sport, and uh, it, it's it's a lot bigger. I guess maybe even a lot of people had perceived. Yeah, I think for a long time we've been dealing with these as, you know, isolated and, oh, it's just about gymnastics and how gymnastics is different as a sport or, or hockey's always sort of had this kind of a, a masculine culture. But now we're realizing it's actually permeated most of our sports across, across the country. So how do we deal with something like that? How do you how do you change people's attitudes about this? Because uh, for it to have gone on as long as it has, uh, unreported in many cases, and, and, you know, organizations that even did know about it didn't do a whole lot about it, that means there's got to be a cultural shift here. There was almost uh, a resignation that, yeah, so what? It goes on. Big deal. Yeah, I think we've got to, you know, again, we've talked about this. We need to restructure how we, how we fund sport, how we uh, organize sport. And, and in particular, like we did find out in those hearings that, you know, they're paying bonuses in Hockey Canada for winning medals. And this, you know, on the podium is focused on providing funding to the to national sport organizations based on winning. And so this winning and the focus on the winning culture, I think, has really skewed how individuals will look at these incidents when they arise. You know, if you're a successful coach and you're winning, but all of a sudden there's an allegation against you, you know, as a CEO of a, an NSO, you're probably in a sticky position. What do I do? This guy's winning or this woman's winning for us and we're, we're making money off of them. What do I do? Uh, and I think that's where we have to get into. We have to um, start looking at how we fund it. Can we fund it based on athlete well-being and uh, uh, other factors than just winning a medal? Well, and again, that's a culture shifter because winning is everything. That's what they'll tell you about it. And, and sadly, that even seems to be the, the modus operandi when you even get into minor sports. Uh, it's win, win, win. House league sports. I mean, I, I've seen coaches uh, that, that just take that mindset into it. And, and uh, they're, they're driven you know, by, by that as opposed to what you'd like to think some coaches were going to be doing, in, especially in minor league sports, and that's character development. I mean, it's it's one thing to teach them how to play the game, whether it's baseball or hockey or whatever the case might be, but those coaches also have a responsibility to be mentors, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And we know from research that there are many benefits for people to play sports at a young age all the way through that they accrue for the rest of their lives. But if those sport experiences 
are harmful, are full of harassment, are not structured in a positive way, people are dropping out. You know, particularly women drop out of sport at a really high rate. And then all those benefits, whether they're physical health, mental health, leadership skills, project management, all the things that we learn how to do when we play sports, um, they don't get those, those benefits. And we now see across all of our sports, we're not providing a real positive uh, environment for kids to play. And to, and to, as you say, and to grow uh, emotionally and, and physically in situations like this, uh, where do you begin? I mean, you know, you, you can't blow everybody out and just say, okay, you, you're all fired. Let's start, let's start this whole thing over again. Or can you? Is maybe uh, it, that sounds like an extreme measure. I know that, you know, Brindamore, the, the head of Hockey Canada, uh, did resign uh, from his position just a little while ago. Uh, but you got to figure that, that it goes a lot deeper than that in that organization and probably in every other organization. Yeah, and I think we look again at the Angus Reid data, it tells us, you know, that 63% of the people surveyed did not, are not confident that the leadership in Hockey Canada can make the change. Interesting, like you said, when you dig into the actual people connected to hockey, I thought they would have more tolerance. It's actually worse. Almost 70% of the people who are directly connected to hockey don't have confidence in Hockey Canada's leadership. So we do need change, you know, and, and sure we can't take every NSO and, and fire everybody in it, but I think Hockey, hockey Canada in particular has an opportunity now to actually lead by stepping down. Um, the board chair has done it. I think we need some senior staff to move um, out, and we need positive um, positive reinforcement of, of, of what a culture should be as opposed to uh, what it has been. How do you change the mindsets of the, of the participants, though? I mean, because uh, I guess one of the things that bothers an awful lot of people as they hear more and more about some of these incidents uh, is complicity. Uh, or, you know, there used to be, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, the saying was, if you see something, say something uh, and, and report this or talk to somebody about this. Uh, you don't hear very much of that these days. But a lot of people just see, yeah, it's probably going on. They just turn their backs to it or or they don't view the, the people that are victimized by this uh, as, as legitimate victims. Yeah, we have, you know, certainly moved into a blame the victim um, or try to explain away or justify what we're seeing um, inside of our sports system because it's the only system we know, right? So this is a, a theory we look at in research too called system justification. If it's the only system I know, I know the rules of how to operate in it, I'm more likely to justify it than want to change it because change is really, really hard. So we do need some people to, to want to make those changes. We need some, some understanding that, that as a participant, you have the right to a positive experience in sport. And if you're not having that experience, you should have a way to demand it. I mean, again, we're finding out from behind the scenes in Hockey Canada that, that their line that you called went to the lawyers that Hockey Canada paid for. So that's not a real reporting system. That's not a real place to bring your problem to because it's, it's again, swept under the rug inside the system. So we do see that the sport ministers created a, an independent ent entity, and we need our sport system to use the new Office of, of, of Sport Integrity to, um, to help manage the issues when they come forward. But as you said on the other side, we've got to start to change the culture and, and build a better sport system from the bottom up. I mean, there are extreme examples. The Graham James situation comes to mind, of course. Uh, you know, a lot of publicity about that over the years and the, the impact that he, that he had on his victims. Are we doing a better job of vetting the people that are in charge and, and, and basically who we're handing our kids over to for periods of time? I'd like to think we are, but I think there was a story this week from gymnastics that showed that, you know, the coach they had problems with, as opposed to publicly fire him, they allowed him to retire. And then before you knew it, another gymnastics club hired him because they didn't know. 
And so, you know, that's another thing we need is, is some sort of national database that, that people have to, you know, uh, you know, you get police checks to be a coach. Well, we need to know if people have had problems or have had um, uh, complaints that have come against them that have been proven. There needs to be a way that they can't move from a different sport or a different city and just do it again. So I'd like to think we're doing better, but I think there's, there's a lot more steps we can take. And that's, as I say, from the the supervisory role, but even within the system itself, uh, education uh, for, you know, the young people themselves to understand what's going on, uh, to know when there's something wrong and to to be able to recognize when something is going wrong uh, and to do something about it, to reach out to somebody in situations like that. That's going to take, I I guess, some structural concerns there, wouldn't it, doctor? I mean, in other words, a reporting mechanism for that. Who do I turn to? Who do I tell? Uh, who's not going to kind of turn around and turn on me? Exactly, and we know that that come this this April um, that all the national sport organizations are going to have to sign on to it. But what's happening at the community level? How do we get to the level where everybody enters sport to know that there's a place for them to feel safe and to, if they're not feeling safe, to talk to someone? Um, you know, a lot of again the research we've done has shown uh, a big problem is the power relationship between coaches and athletes and. Um, mixed in there is what you said of parents who have this drive for their kids to be successful in sport who again might be willing to accept an abusive coach because the coach wins and and try to to, uh, let their child stay in that system and so we need education we need to understand um, you know what a positive sport environment is and and we talk a lot about um, you know maltreatment abuse who's describing what a positive environment should be and and how do you get that across so that's what you're looking for as opposed to avoiding uh, abuse well and that power that the the, the abusers can hold over a, a, a young person is, is it's it's frightening actually uh because it is abuse to, to actually do something like that we saw that in the chicago blackhawks situation a couple of years ago didn't we uh, essentially the, the the perpetrator there the 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 predator uh basically said i can ruin your career if you say anything about this and 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 who could? I mean, because of the connections and things that are said uh, by these people. Uh, and I can understand a, a 12, 13, 14-year-old that probably has aspirations of at least doing well in that sport, not necessarily playing it professionally, but to, to go rise up through the ranks and to, to know that somebody can actually you know, prevent that from happening is is adding even more stress, I guess, and problems to to the already existing problems that are there. Yeah, 100%. And we need to figure out a way that 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 power relationship, while we rely on coaches because they have the skills and the knowledge, we need to make sure there's a balance in the power, that there's a, you know, a, an avenue for athletes, whether it's an ombudsperson or something that actually advocates on their behalf, because that relationship has proven to be one of the most problematic um, situations. It's what happened with Grand James. It's what's happening in all the uh, prominent, you know, it's what Kaylee Humphreys talked about with Bobsled and Skeleton, and, and they took away her funding when she, she uh, filed a complaint the power structures of how we fund and support athletes and how we coach them are really at the heart of the problem. Well, and the circle the wagons uh, mindset that some people have, you know, this is a closed shop, you know, what's uh, done in the dressing room or said in the dressing room stays in the dressing room or, or wherever uh, this seems to happen. And, and, and that seems all too prevalent too often. Yeah. You know, what I find really problematic a lot is people talk about a team as a family, and, you know, you're part of the family. We all know uh, and hear stories about families that, that that's how they actually cover up abuse, right? And how they, they hide it is that, you, you know, you're part of a family. You don't tell on family members. And I see it used in sport. And to me, I find that to be a real problematic term for a team uh, and, and also a coercive term. 
What's the impact short-term and, and maybe to a certain extent long-term on this, doctor? But uh, as you say, parents are being turned off by this. I, I've heard from parents that are saying, you know what, my son's not going to play hockey this year or daughter, whatever you know the case might be. Uh, you know, it just It's too toxic over there right now. Uh, I mean, we've seen uh, the, the participation levels in, in many sports fall off for a variety of reasons. Uh, and, and we postulated about what that might be. Uh, <laughs> This actually is probably one of the causes that just didn't get talked about a whole lot. Uh, but with, with enrollment down and participation down and something like that, what does this do for, for the future of, of amateur sports? I think we're in real trouble. We already have a very low participation rate in Canada. You know, less than 50% of our, our children participate in sport. We're now also facing rising costs, right, coming back from COVID, trying to recover from that, but then add inflation to it. We've got probably the most expensive environment right now for for children to come back into and we have all these problems i think it's going to see a further drive down in our participation rates and again the long-term impacts for on, on our health system on our um the leadership and the skills that that children will miss out on is going to be i think a dramatic uh, shift for us so i think you know if, if sport canada is listening we need to make some changes pretty quick we need to uh to start talking about positive environments. We need some sort of um, a system that allows us to evaluate sport organizations and teams for positive environments so we can keep kids in sport. Well, and I know there's some complaints about the attendance, for instance, at the World Juniors right now. And, and I certainly these stories are, are probably part of the reason for that. Uh, I mean, you know, people vote with their money in situations like that. But the, the, the longer concern here, I guess, is, as you say, the impact is going to have long-term on sports. I mean, there's there's a, a long list of benefits to being participatory in, in these sorts of activities. But if you're fearing for your child's well-being and safety, uh, I can see why parents are going to turn their back and say no. Oh, I can totally understand from a parent perspective. So how do we get that parent trust back, right? And and in the, the Angus Reid, we did see parents who have children in hockey are very concerned. You know, they've got a high rate of, of saying that they're not confident the changes are going to happen. They're not confident the culture is going to change. So we do need, we need a system. We need a um, uh, some sort of a good housekeeping seal of approval system that shows us that these sport organizations have done the training, are promoting a positive environment that other parents can share their experiences so that everyone's informed. We do this with consumer products. We do it with almost everything else we do in our lives. We need to do it with sport right now. Absolutely. Uh, and keep this on the front burner, too. It's not something that's going to go away. And uh, that's Absolutely. the problem. That's why it's festered as long as it has, because we didn't pay attention to it. Uh, doctor, that's always right. a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate your input. Always appreciate these discussions. Take care. Dr. Ann Pegararo, the director, co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.